Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for gathering us as your people and uh, reminding us already of your great love for us. And we thank you for your love, which is uh, better than anything. And we pray that as we come to this passage that we might come and learn of Jesus' love for us, his greatness as our King, our Messiah, our Anointed One, our Saviour. And we pray that we'd get a glimpse of him and his love even for his enemies in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, welcome again to church today. Uh, we're, gonna, we're working our way through this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we've called the series The King's Heart because the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is about King David. Uh, not about Samuel, not even about Saul but about King David, and David, the life of David, which we're looking at, is the longest narrative in all of ancient literature that presents a single human life. There's a little bit of history for you today. Don't know whether you knew that. In other words, in all ancient literature, the longest narrative presentation of a single human life, a biography, is, um, is this one of King David. He's the most, he, we have more about him than anyone else in all of history. And that's what the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is designed to give us, a glimpse of this, the greatest king of Israel. We've called the story the king's heart, this series the king's heart, because in 1 and 2 Samuel we learn about the heart of God uh, and his king and our own hearts. And today we come to learning about the heart of the king which takes the hard road. And, um, and uh, it's interesting that we're going through this because kings uh, are mostly marginalised to meaningless pageantry in our world today. You know, we watch Harry marry Megan and it's all kind of nice. It's just a fairy tale. And it's nice to watch. We kind of look at all the wealth, but it's very meaningless. Not that he's ever begun to become king. But, you know, I don't know whether you're a monarchist. Uh, very few Australians are, though. We kind of respect the royal family. But for those of us who are monarchists, um, it's not because we actually think they should reign or rule. We like our democratical system in Australia, but, you know, we kind of like the Queen because she's old, she drinks tea, and she has corgis, you know, but... Um, but it is interesting, we're looking at this, um, and the, the Bible affirms the goodness of a monarchy. And yet, in our world, we have to have a democracy, and we don't trust a monarchy, a real monarchy. Why is that? Because we know that human beings are sinful, and that none of us really are fit to rule. And so we have to keep moving on those who rule you know, every four years, or in our case, every one or two years as we find ourselves in. Why is that? Because we don't trust our leaders, because we know our leaders are fallen and foolish. And yet, despite that, despite our fear and despite our suspicion of inherited kind of reigning and ruling, there's something within us, there remains some enduring significance of kingship which is inescapable, which is burned into our souls. And we know within us that our world ought to be ruled by a great and honest and merciful and fearless king. And you look at all the stories, all the, all the stories of old and new. You have the Lord of the Rings, the Arthur legends, you know, there's always a king that comes to his throne. And when he comes to his throne, 
There is peace for the world. And you remember in The Hobbit, in the Misty Mountains, we're told there is no king there that rules. And the, the result is danger and it's not safe to travel through the Misty uh, Mountains. And though we don't have kings in Australia nor want them, we know what a true king is, a real king is, an ideal king is. And there is something within us that longs for one. C.S. Lewis famously said that where we're forbidden to honour a king, we honour billionaires and film stars and rock stars and, and movie gods and kings of pop and rock and business and that kind of thing. Kingship really is, there's a reason we adore kings and create them, whether it's in the modern day fairy tales, the Marvel universe or whatever. But that's what are superheroes, they are the great kings of old. There's something within us that longs for a great and glorious king. And, um, and yet we live in a world where we don't trust anyone to take that role. The Bible says that there is a king behind all kings. There's a ruler behind all rulers. And he is a great and glorious and good king which all of us ought to long to sit under his rule and be reigned by. And really, that's what the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is about. We have the rise of the true king of Israel, King David, and he is a king which all of us would be able to get behind. And at this point in the story, David's been anointed by God to be the king of Israel. And Saul is the king on the throne of Israel, but God has rejected him. And that's because the king of Israel was designed to serve his people and to save his people. And Saul, he didn't serve the people, he had them serve him. And he didn't save the people, he was, we saw this last week, he was a coward when the enemy came against him. So God rejects Saul, he was disobedient to God, didn't trust God, and God has selected David to be the king of Israel. And so Saul, you can imagine, is envious. He's furious. He's afraid of David. And the result is he tries to kill him. And between chapters 18 and this 26, he tries to kill David almost in every single chapter. It starts in chapter 18 when David comes back from defeating Goliath and all the people start singing this song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And as Andy said to me this week, it's a little bit awkward, don't you think? If you're in a, a kingdom where everyone's singing about someone who isn't the reigning king. And ever since then, Saul, he is um, absolutely paranoid. And he tries to kill David in a number of, number of different ways. Twice when David's in the presence of Saul, Saul throws his spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall and kill him. And this is what drives David into the wilderness. He becomes a fugitive, and in the wilderness, he is surrounded by his warrior friends. Um, so he's in the wilderness, and he's driven into the wilderness, becomes a fugitive, and he's surrounded by somewhere between 300 to 600 warrior friends who become his mates. They care for him, they go on raiding, and they keep him safe. So here is David, he is on the run for his life. God has chosen him to be king, and yet he has nowhere to lay his head. He is a suffering servant kind of king. 
He's on the run from his life. He's being persecuted. Constantly trying, Saul is constantly trying to find out where David is so he can attack him and kill him. They are enemies. And what is remarkable about this chapter is the way David loves his enemy. And so we come to chapter 26. After numerous attempts, uh, Saul gets some new intelligence. So look down at verse 1. Here's the intelligence. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went to the desert of Ziph with 3,000 men. Select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road of the hill of Hakalah facing the Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. Now, I've got to remind you, that we're not in Middle Earth, I keep saying this, we're not in a galaxy far, far away. This is a place in our world that you can travel to. This is a map of Palestine, and I want you to see the Dead Sea here. And if you just go south of Jerusalem, uh, and between the Dead Sea and the south of Jerusalem, there's, there's this desert of Judea. Jacques, did you guys go visit this recently? You did. So this is this massive desert plain, and um, there's kind of a mountain ridge close to the Dead Sea there, that big watery mass there. Okay, so I want to show you some of the terrain here. So this is the Dead Sea, and you've got the, this kind of dead plain that goes up to this mountain there. And um, you can kind of see the desert to the right there. Yep, okay, so this is the mountain ridge. Uh, you can see how kind of desolate it is, but this is the Engedi, this green kind of water catchment, water comes down here and into the Dead Sea. And that's where David had been hiding out uh, in this kind of valley. Lots and lots of caves here, really, you know, quite a great place to hide. Can you go back to the map though, James? A um, couple of slides before. All the action is up north of Jerusalem. And Saul is north of Jerusalem in a place called, oh, thank you very much. Um, in a place called uh, Gibeah, and David really is he's exiled into this very desert wasteland. And he goes down to Engedi, that's uh, where he was hiding out earlier in the chapters, uh, chapter 20 to 25. But he comes west into this desert region, and the Hakalah is somewhere in there on this mountain, and it's overlooking the Jeshimon, which is the desert of Judah. So that's where they find themselves. And James, you can go to the, the header slide now. Thanks very much. And um, so that's where they're at. But, and Saul comes hunting David. Uh, but David, instead of being hunted, he comes for Saul. Notice verse 5. David sets out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where, da he saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. So the hunter becomes the hunted, as it were. And though he's surrounded by 3,000 of Israel's crack troops, he's right in the middle of them. And yet David decides to do something very daring, very courageous. He's a king that I'd love to follow. He says... 3,000 of Israel's best troops down in this valley. He's on top. He's got 300 or so men. He's like, I want to creep down there 
and get right to the heart of Saul. These guys want him dead. And it's at night. He's like, nah, let's, anyone want to come with me? You know, down into this, you know, this fortress of men sleeping around their king. And there's only one dude crazy enough to do this, and that's the man called Abishi, who is part of Joab's family. And these are the, the kind of the Old Testament sons of thunder, bloodthirsty men. They'll do anything for David. And sometimes they do things which you know, David's not happy with because they're such bloodthirsty men. So David and Abishi, verse 7, went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp, his spear stuck in the ground near his head, Abner and his soldiers lying around him. So although Saul thinks that he's in the safest place possible, surrounded by this impenetrable defense system of 3,000 crack troops, in reality, and with his chosen weapon at hand, his spear... He is in reality in a very vulnerable position. And Abishi, David's friend, knows it. He says to David, verse 8, Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. No duh, right? And so then he says, Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. And the irony would be delicious, wouldn't it? Saul's attempted to kill David twice with his spear, but failed to pin him against the wall. And Abishi says, I can strike him. Won't take me two strikes. One strike's all I need, and he will be dead, and no one in the camp will hear any of it. Please let me do it, David, Abishi says. Now, what would you do? He's your enemy. Not just that guy at work who's a bit annoying to you. He's your real enemy who wants you dead, who's hunting you, who's exiled you into the desert regions. Very little food there. You're hiding in caves all day. You're worried for your wife who's somewhere back in your land and your kids. You're worried that they're going to be murdered. And you're on the run for your life. For a number of years, this was happening for David. And you're terrified. You live each day terrified. You're unable to sleep. You shake. You have the shakes. This is your enemy. And finally, God gives him into your hands. What are you going to do? And notice what David remarkably says. He says, no, verse 9, his reason, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should lay hands on the Lord's anointed. And verse 23, when he's speaking to Saul later, he says, the Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So here is a king you and I, right, could get behind. Fearless, brave, and incredibly daring, courageous and compassionate unflinching and incorruptible, brave and blameless, heroic and holy, fearless and faithful, devilish, daredevilish, and yet angelic of heart, gutsy yet godly, mighty yet moral, valiant yet virtuous. You know, the problem with all our leaders is they're one or the other. They're nice, but they're pathetically weak. And then we have incredibly strong leaders in our world who have no moral stamina in their life. And here's a king you and I could follow, isn't it? It's a king that we would long to have lead us. He's been running for his life for years, finally gets his chance, and he says, I refuse 
to take the throne by force. The throne is a gift. It is not something I will take by force. God has anointed Saul as king, and I refuse to take his life in my own hands. I will entrust myself to God. And it's a little bit like that moment in The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember when Sauron is fallen? His, his staff is broken, and uh, you think Gandalf is going to smite him down in that moment, and Gandalf refuses, and he sets him free, and he says this, Do not kill him even now. He was once great, of noble kind, that we should dare not raise our hands against. He is fallen, and his cure is beyond us, but it would still spare him in the hope that he might find it. Now, David doesn't say that, but he might as well have said something like that. You know, J.R. Tolkien's drawing from the life of David probably at this moment. There is remarkable kindness, mercy, and love for an enemy. And that's the heart of this king, a heart of mercy and love. And I want you to marvel. I'm going to draw out, I think, four or five things for you. And I want you to reflect on the heart of this king, his heart for mercy and his heart for forgiveness, and I think you'll be able to relate, and it'll, it'll convict us of the way our hearts aren't often filled with mercy. So the first thing I want to notice for you is that David refuses to take on God's role as judge. He refuses to take the role of judge and to, to get vengeance over his enemy. Look at what David says, verse 10. As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. Three very different outcomes. God might strike him down for Saul's wickedness right this very moment, or God might let him live till old age, or God might have him die in battle. And what David is saying is only God knows what he deserves. He's refusing to assume that he knows what Saul deserves. I mean, Saul was a wicked king. He was hunting him. You know, it's obvious what he deserves. But David says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not judge. I'm going to entrust judgment to God. Only God has the wisdom to know what this person deserves. You know, the application to us here is very obvious. We must never try and give people what they deserve. Never. Not in our personal relationships. I mean, if you're a sitting judge, uh, things are different. But even if you're a sitting judge, you would be able to share with us how hard justice is and how imperfect justice is in this world and how, how hard your job is. And we ought to be praying for our judges in our country because it is incredibly hard to bring justice because we don't know all the facts. And that's what David says here. He says, judgment is for God and not for me. Whether he dies now, God could smite him right now. He might give him an old age or he might die in battle. That's for God to determine, not for me. You know, there's a verse in Romans chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul says, Apostle Paul <laughs> says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Notice what the Apostle Paul's saying. He's saying that retaliation and punishment belong to God. He's saying that repaying and judging evil is forbidden to us, not because it's wrong in itself. Evil does deserve to be punished, but that is God's prerogative to do that, not for us. We're to leave it to the wrath of God. And God's wrath is expressed in the world today through our legal system, and one day it will be revealed from heaven in the final day of God's judgment. And as we wait, as we wait for the judicial system on earth to bring justice and for God to bring that great and final day of justice, you and I are to get busy serving our enemy's welfare. That's what the Bible teaches. And that is what this great and awesome King of Israel does. He entrusts justice and judgment to God. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who's written a lot about forgiveness and and this kind of thing. And in one of his books, he says that the only means of prohibiting violence by ourselves is with the recognition that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. He says that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in God's vengeance. And he says, let me quote him, he says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human non-violence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. He's saying there, it takes a country like Australia with white picket fences in suburban areas where there is no ethnic cleansing. It takes a location for that, for people to stop believing in the goodness of a God of judgment. He goes on to say, in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die, that is this belief that God doesn't judge anyone, that view will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What he's saying there is that The belief in a God of vengeance, if you don't believe in a God of vengeance, he says that secretly makes you nourish violence in your own heart. See, the human impulse to get justice is so strong that if you don't believe that God will finally bring justice one day, what other response could you possibly have other than to make justice happen yourself. And Wolf is saying, no, 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 it's only people who trust the fact that God will one day bring justice and judge the world who are able to say, I won't take vengeance on my enemy. And we've seen this in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Committee coming out of apartheid. The only way true ethnic conflict is dealt with is when people say, you know what, I'm not going to judge. And how do you do that unless you believe in a God of judgment? That's where David is at. He says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So that's the first thing. 
I want you to notice about this remarkable, incredible king over Israel. He refuses to take God's role as judge upon himself. Okay, then secondly, the second thing I want you to notice is that what this means is, therefore, he refuses to make Saul pay for his crimes, for his sins, for his injustices, for his, the things he has hurt. What is forgiveness? Let me give you a way of thinking about forgiveness. When someone wrongs you, to forgive them is a commitment not to pay them back in return for the hurt that they have caused you. If you're forgiving somebody who has wronged you, it's a commitment not to bring it up to that person again in order to punish them. It's not to bring them up to other people hoping they will punish them. And it's not to bring it up in your own heart hoping someone else punishes them, resenting them, nurturing uh, violence against him. In other words... Um, When someone wrongs you, forgiveness and mercy is when you make the commitment, when you say, I'm not going to go to you and try and punish you. I'm not going to punish you by bringing up the hurt you've done to me in front of others. And I'm not even going to bring it up in my own soul and replay the videotape over and over and over again. That's what forgiveness is about. You know, in our dealing with those who've hurt us and harmed us, we can make them pay, right? We can make cutting remarks and drag out the past and remind them of the things they've done. We can be far more demanding and controlling of that person than what is kind of right or necessary, and we can make excuses of that because of the pain they've caused us in the past. We can punish them with acts of mercy, showing how self-righteous and great we are and how small and pathetic they are. We can avoid them, be cold towards them in an effort to make them feel small. We can seek to hurt them or harm them. We can literally try and take something valuable from them. They're the ways we go to them and punish them. But then there are other ways where we don't go to them to punish them. We go to others trying to punish them. And we, 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 we can run them down to others under the guise of warning others about this person. You know, you've got to be careful of this person because here's what they've done to me in the past. Uh, we can cut them down under the guise of seeking sympathy and sharing our burdens and our hurts. We go to others, which I'm just feeling so hurt right now. And, you know, there is an appropriate warning of others about people if you are concerned about their safety. And there is an appropriate sharing of your burdens with others, but we've got to watch our motives right. The last time you shared something about someone else, was it because you were asking for prayer, for forgive, that you might be a more forgiving person, or was it because secretly you're wanting to pay them back in front of others? And to tear them down in front of others. And then thirdly, we can deal, we can punish them in our own hearts. We can replay the videotapes of the wrong in our imagination. And we can keep the sense of loss and hurt fresh in our minds. You know, and what this means, therefore, is that we ought to be, as as far as is possible, we ought to be praying for them. And seeking 
their goods. David refuses, it's incredible, to make Saul pay for what he had done to him. Notice this. He doesn't bring up with, the, with his... He's got the, the spear right there. He could take it and make Saul pay. And he refuses that. There's a bishy uh, right next to him who's offering to pay uh, for it. Saul could have punished Saul by talking to Abishi about all the wrong that Saul had done to him. And he refuses to even do that. And then notice even the way that David is talking to Saul. Notice where is it that he says, my lord the king. Yes, verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is my lord the king. Now, what does that show you about the heart of David in that moment? He's not nourishing grudges in his own heart. He's not saying, you dirty old bitter violent man, why the heck are you still pursuing me? You wicked, guilty perpetrator of injustice. He doesn't speak that way to his enemy. What does he call his enemy? My Lord, the King. What does that show you about David's inner world in this moment? He's not feeding on vengeance, even in his own heart. So these are the three things, really, that mark out a forgiving and merciful heart, isn't it? We don't bring it up to them to punish them. We don't bring it up to others in the hope they will punish them. And we don't even bring it up to ourselves, constantly thinking and hoping that somehow punishment will fall upon them from heaven or something. David, no, he doesn't do that. He doesn't make Saul pay. And it is incredible. Isn't this the kind of king that you would love? to follow and honour and obey. Okay, so that's the second thing. He refuses to make Saul pay. Thirdly, notice then who does pay. David pays. Forgiveness always involves someone paying the debt. If you don't forgive, you're saying you've got to pay. But if you do forgive, who's the one that pays? It's not as though no one pays. You're the one that pays. And notice that in forgiving and showing mercy to his enemy in this moment, Abishi says to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. And he must have said to David, you're crazy not to do this. This person could kill every one of us. You're putting us all at risk. But David, in not taking vengeance in this moment, is paying an incredibly high risk. In the next chapter, he flees to the Philistines, his sworn enemy, because he's so, still so scared of King Saul. He still lives as a fugitive after this event. And as a result, he pays a very, very high price, putting himself at enormous risk, making himself enormously vulnerable. And that's because forgiveness and mercy always cost the person doing the forgiving. Always, always, always. Either they pay or you pay. You can't dismiss the pain and the hurt. What is forgiveness? When someone has wronged you, it means they owe you, they have a debt with you, and forgiveness is to absorb the cost of the debt yourself. You pay the price yourself. When you go out for coffee, for lunch, and you say, hey, hey, don't worry, I'll pay. 
What are you doing there? You're forgiving their debt. Now, it's small. To you, it's a small thing. To me, it's a small thing. And it doesn't really feel very hard to do that. But what happens when someone really wrongs you? Only one of two things can happen. You either make them pay, you punish them by going to them, or you punish them by going to others, or you pay the debt and you swallow the pain and you hurt rather than them hurting. You know, I was reading a book on forgiveness this week in which a young man was describing his experience of forgiving a woman whom he'd been engaged to, but she had left him before they got married. And this is how he describes forgiveness. He says, Forgiveness is to deny yourself the dark pleasure of venting and fondling your thoughts of vengeance. He says, Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but in small sums over a year. When I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past, I, I paid. Uh, whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity, when I saw her with another man, I paid. When I praised her to others, when I wanted to slice away at her reputation, I paid. All of these were payments, but she never saw them. Forgiveness, he says, is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It's also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. Pain is the consequence of sin. There's no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness. Forgiveness always involves the payment of a price. It always costs something. And it's going to be on you if you are going to forgive. You're the one that pays. You release them from their debt and you incur, therefore, their debt. And it is incredibly painful. And notice what David does in releasing Saul from the debt, in refusing to take action. He pays with a life spent again as a fugitive. And I wonder where you're at in forgiving someone. Is it because you just simply can't pay the cost of that? Now at this point, some of you are saying, that sounds like you just let the person get away with it. You mean you don't go and talk to them about it? You let them get away with it? No, I haven't said that at all. And that brings me to the fourth thing we notice about David here, which is that David loves his enemy enough to confront but not to condemn his enemy. How does David love Saul? He doesn't just simply forgive him and go away. Notice what happens. He takes the spear. He goes to a high place where he's safe from assault, but also where he's audible. And then he calls down to Saul. And Saul, when he hears David, what happens? He is cut to the heart, pricked of heart. And, he, and David says to Saul, look, I was down there. Saul, I could have taken your life. Here's the proof, the sword and the cup of water that was beside your bed. And the result is Saul is cut to the heart and he calls himself a fool. David, my son, verse 17, is that your voice? He says, I have been a fool. And notice Saul is saying, 
Notice what Saul's saying. He realizes that he has just experienced an act of love from his enemy. And possibly it starts to impact Saul. Now, notice what's going on here. When most, what most people do is what David, what most people do is not what David did. What most people do when we're wronged is either we say nothing on the outside, but on the inside we boil with rage and anger. Or, on the other hand, we, we, we go and talk to the person, but we do it in a way that we punish them and make them feel bad and we rehash the past. Basically, we try and punish them. We're trying to make them feel as badly as they made us feel. But notice that David does neither. David, first of all, forgives Saul from the heart so that when he confronts Saul, and this is the moment, he's on the mountain looking down, he calls out to Saul, what's he going to call out? You filthy, wicked man. He doesn't do that. Notice what he says. He confronts Saul, and he's not trying to make him pay. He's trying to reclaim Saul. Here's what's important to see. We're supposed to forgive people who have wronged us, but we're also supposed to love them. We're supposed to forgive them, And to love them and to love your enemy means that you never let them just keep on sinning. That's not good for them and it's not good for you to to let them keep sinning. So David, he forgives this guy. He has a heart of mercy, but his love for Saul is such that he doesn't condemn him, but then he just doesn't walk away. He confronts him. Without a heart of anger, without a heart, without a heart of vengeance and vindictiveness, but with a heart of love and mercy. It's never loving just to let people keep on sinning. That's the worst thing for him. And so David, remarkably, he forgives him and then he keeps on loving even his enemy in this moment. And, um, and, and notice, it takes ingenuity. He picks up the sword, spear, he goes to the mountain, he says, look, I could have taken your life. And notice he's realistic. He doesn't wake Saul up in the middle of 3,000 soldiers and say, hey, look, I could have killed you. He doesn't trust Saul. He goes up a mountain and Saul says, hey, come down the mountain. Everything's good. David's like, heck no, I'm not going to do that. I don't trust you one bit. Your repentance is always shot through with holes. Send Send one of your soldiers up to come and grab the spear. You see what David's doing here? To forgive is to love somebody doesn't necessarily mean you trust that person. And David doesn't trust Saul one bit, and yet he has a heart of mercy and forgiveness towards him. To to forgive someone and then to trust them immediately, that's naive. Uh, It's not the best thing for them, and it's not the best thing for you either. But to confront them after you've forgiven them You're confronting them, not for your own sake, not to pay them back. You're confronting them for their sake, that they might grow and actually realize their sin and find salvation and forgiveness. If you confront someone out of love and without the slightest desire to make them feel bad, but just simply to show them what's wrong, you know, if you confront someone out of love, They may not change, but I tell you, if you confront somebody out of vindictiveness, they'll never change. 
That's what David does here. It's incredible. You watch him standing on this mountain, such love for his enemy. No vindictiveness. And that's the only way, actually, that people will change and hear uh, what you confront them with. And I've had so much to apply this even in my own marriage. And if you're married, you need to apply this immediately to your marriage. Because we're always confronting one another in marriage, aren't we? And how do you do it? Is there a tenderness of heart? Is it clear that you're confronting them because you love them? Or is it clear to them that the reason you're confronting them is because you're just ticked off, you're angry, they've hurt you, and you want them to feel some of the pain that you're feeling? Every time I do that, I never win Liz. She's never won, and we just spiral round and round and round and round in just this pattern of hurting one another. And David's teaching us something about a heart of love, which doesn't leave the person in their sin, confronts them. But it confronts them with a heart of tenderness. Now, I need to wrap up. That's David. This is the king chosen by God, the king after God's own heart. And here's the thing. Don't you long for a king like that? I long for a king like that. I would happily give my life in service of a king like that. I'd love to be a leader like that. But here's the thing. The danger of reading a story like this is that you and I think that this is intended to teach us about forgiveness and how we're meant to relate to the enemies in our life as though the Bible were one series, one long series of stories intended to just give us a moral. Each and every chapter of the Bible, here's a moral so that you might become a better person. The Bible isn't a story about you becoming a better person. The Bible is a story about a great and wonderful King and Saviour who has come to rescue you and forgive you of your sins. When you read this story about David, this is what you're meant to be thinking, man, I would love a king like this. And if you're a Christian, you do have a king like this. This great story, as you read it, you're meant to be thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ who came and refused to act as judge. He refused to take vengeance in his own hands. He is the one who refused to make those who were killing their, him pay. He cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's the one who, instead of making us pay, he paid with blood and nails on a cross for your sin. He is a God who comes to confront us. But in a loving and tender way, he does confront us. And some churches downplay this. Oh, God is a God of love. He never can. No, Jesus comes to confront us. He says you're sinning and there are things that you need to turn away from and repent of. But he does it in such a tender way that he doesn't just win our salvation as he dies for us. He wins our hearts. Here is a king that I could give my life to. I could follow. I would willingly sacrifice for as you read this story, this is a glimpse into the true king of Israel who would come. David was not perfect. He wasn't a perfect king, but he shows us a glimpse of what God had promised to come into the world. And don't you love our king? He's wonderful, isn't he? Jesus comes not to condemn the world, but to save it. And that's why we read that passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. When he was struck and reviled, he didn't strike back. When he 
When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He had no place to lay his head. He was not a fugitive, but he was a a roaming, wandering teacher who slept out in the wilderness at night. David risked his life in order to forgive Saul and reclaim him, but Jesus Christ lost his life in order to forgive us and reclaim us. Wonderful, isn't he? Isn't he wonderful? And it's only if you know what you have in him that you'll actually be able to go out into life forgiving others. What does it do for you? It gives you humility. He came because I had a debt before God, and that debt was way bigger than any debt anyone else owes me. And if I truly know that, then you know the debt that he's forgiven me makes very small the debt my wife or a friend owes me because of the harm that they have done. That's what Jesus teaches. Remember the, the parable of the forgiveness-forgetting servant who's forgiven a $300 million loan, and then he goes out and someone owes him 20 bucks, and he has him locked up, put in prison. And Jesus says, that is wicked to have been forgiven so much and to be unwilling to forgive so little. It's why in Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray, that we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against others. When you and I fail to forgive, we cut off the branch that we sit upon for our salvation. We are, the only reason we're saved is because of forgiveness. And for you to be unwilling to forgive, that's crazy. But notice also what Jesus gives us. He gives us the affirmation and the love which enables you to cope with the way others perhaps have torn at your reputation. All of that pain pales into significance when you know of the wealth you have in heaven. The wealth you have in your relationship with Christ enables you to pay for the forgiveness that you offer others. We follow a wonderful king. He's forgiven us immensely. He has the heart of mercy. He takes the hard road. And he calls us as his followers to follow that road. Our church, what are we on about? We're on about connecting people to the life, love, and freedom Jesus offers. Knowing the freedom of the forgiveness he gives us. Being loved by God and going out and living that life of grace and mercy. We're on about growing and making disciples of Jesus who have the heart of that king. Imagine what it would look like. If a hundred people here actually went out with the heart of God and didn't make others who wronged them pay, but were tender, we confront them, but out of love. Imagine the difference we could make in our city. That's what we're on about as a church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage, for the Lord Jesus Christ, his love and tenderness towards us, the forgiveness he comes at great personal cost to his own life. Father, we're his disciples. And we want to grow to become like him. Help us have his same heart that refuses to pay others back, but has the spiritual riches in order to pay those debts ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.